Well, Christmas is only two weeks from today, so I hope you have all of your shopping done. But we will be meeting that morning. Uh, we're changing the time up a little bit. Um, on the 25th, we'll be meeting at 11 a.m. instead of 10.30. You have a, a little bit of extra time, particularly if you have young kids in the morning, to open presents and, uh, and then get here uh, for the worship service. But we'll be meeting at 11 a.m. on that morning, the 25th. No Christmas Eve service this year, um, but, uh, but we will be meeting that Christmas morning. Um, obviously, today, we're going to start into a little bit of a series in the book of Hebrews. We'll be uh, not finishing this text today, but going through part of it and continuing on for the next couple weeks uh, in little short snippets after the uh, Christmas concert, which is next Sunday morning, and then on Christmas morning, we'll have a few different things going on that morning, but we'll be in Hebrews chapter 2 uh, the next few weeks as we look at the incarnation and as we celebrate and think about Christmas um, and uh, what God has done in sending the Lord Jesus Christ to become a man for us. Um, so Hebrews chapter 2, I think you are probably all there already, but this is where we're going to be this morning. When, uh, when I was in high school, I think I've probably told you many times that I'm a sports guy, and so I played sports, um, played basketball, and played soccer as well for my high school. And most of the time, I went to a small Christian school, most of the time at our school, uh, the only way to really improve your team was not to bring players in from the outside. Um, we did not get a lot of recruiting and big transfers in to make our team better from year to year. You generally had to improve on your own and practice a lot if you wanted to get better uh, and improve as a team. But one year, when I was a junior, um, we, our school decided for whatever reason that year that we were gonna sort of open the doors up for foreign exchange student transfers. This was a thing, I guess people probably still do this, but this was a thing that we did. And so you would have uh, students come to America for one year and they would come and they would attend your school and you know cultural and language immersion and all of that. And so that year, we opened the doors up for foreign exchange students, and we had several of them come. And as we started to hear about who was coming, rumors started flying about these students and their potential impact on our sports teams. We found out that there was a Brazilian student coming in who played soccer. Speaking of Brazil, if you root for them in the World Cup, I'm so sorry. I know you take it harder than the rest of us but I'm sorry. But we found out this student was coming in and uh, we thought that was pretty awesome in and of itself. Brazil obviously has that aura about it regarding soccer. We figured that the worst high school Brazilian soccer player was better than any of us at soccer. And so we were thrilled that this guy was coming in. And so that was cool in and of itself, but to top it all off, not only was he Brazilian, not only did he play soccer, but his name was Ronaldo. So, if you're not familiar with soccer, Ronaldo is the name of a very well-known, he was a very well-known, world-famous Brazilian soccer player. It would be like a Brazilian school having an American exchange student come in whose name was Michael Jordan, you know, that sort of thing. So, we were thrilled with all of that, 
And Ronaldo ended up being a nice guy, and he did play on our team, but he was hardly the soccer savant that we were all hoping <laughs> he would be, unfortunately. We weren't wrong, though, in hoping for a really great player to come in, because even though soccer is maybe the ultimate team sport, one super good player can absolutely change the dynamic of your entire team and can raise everyone else's level and make everyone else better. One individual can reshape the whole team. Now this morning we obviously find ourselves in the middle of the Christmas season and in a very real sense what we are celebrating is the second person of the Trinity joining our team. I mean, I don't mean to make light of it, but that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about the second person of the Trinity coming and becoming a human being and joining our team. The whole season of the incarnation is the time where we celebrate Jesus coming and taking on human flesh and becoming one of us. And that's what we're going to look at, at in this passage in Hebrews and the significance of that. We're celebrating this unique reality. Nothing like it has ever happened before. And we have received so much because he joined our team, because he took on human flesh and became one of us. We are the beneficiaries in dramatic and significant ways this morning. And I want to help you to remember that. Obviously, you know, there's the warnings every year about Christmas to remember the real reason for the season, to, to focus on why we're actually, actually celebrating this. And it is a significant time of year, and I want to just go back to some of these basics the next few weeks, and I want to remind you of why we benefit so much and what the benefits are because the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh, joined our team, and became one of us. So Hebrews chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning in the next couple of weeks. And here's what we're going to look at. Five gifts we receive because Jesus is fully human. You can notice the title on the screen, fully human, and that matters. Fully human to fully save. So five gifts that we receive because Jesus is fully human. The first one of these you can see on the screen is that our enemy is defeated. He won the victory over our enemy, and he had to do this as a full 100% human being. This is found in verse 14. So let's start in verse 14, and I want you to notice at the beginning of this verse it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. And so you can see the word therefore and so we want to look back, and this word connects us to the argument that the author of Hebrews has been building here, and this argument begins in verse 5. So I want to explain to you the logic of verses 5 through 13 that provide the background and the significance of what we're going to talk about in verses 14 through 18. Now, the book of Hebrews sometimes can be a bit tricky because the author pulls all of these Old Testament quotes in. And sometimes he just sort of throws them out there as if we should all know exactly what he is doing with them. And I don't want to get into every quote this morning, but I want to show you what's going on in verses 5 through 13. 
So if you will look back up at verse 5 there, here's what it says. For it was not to angels, he's already been talking about angels in the book of Hebrews, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and then he gives this quote. It's probably set apart in your Bible. Where is this quote from? Well, it's from a, probably a very familiar psalm to you, Psalm 8. Psalm 8, in the book of Psalms, is a meditation of David, of King David, on God's original intention and purpose for human beings in creation. So let me say that again, because it's really important that you understand this, because this shapes our whole passage. So Psalm 8 is David's meditation on God's original purpose and intention for human beings at creation. What was that intention? Well, you can see it in Psalm 8, and you can see it here in this quote. Look at verse 7. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him, human beings, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This is talking about how God created human beings to rule and reign over the earth as God's image bearers. They were to represent him. Remember this back in Genesis. We'll talk about it later some this morning. God creates human beings in his image and gives them a commission to take dominion over the earth and to rule and reign as they represent God. Verse 9 identifies Jesus as the one who is crowned with glory through suffering in order to restore mankind to their rightful role in that. You know the story that even though God gave Adam and Eve and all of us that commission, we failed in that, rejected his rule and reign, and went our own way. David is pondering that reality, and verse 9, look there, says, but we still, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because, to the, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So he's the one that comes in order to restore and to take back that original purpose for human beings. Verses 10 through 13 then now make the case that in order for Jesus to accomplish that work, in order for him to rightfully restore mankind's position and their rule and reign, he has to become a man. He has to identify with his people and he has to become their representative And by doing that, he will bring them along with him. And he will restore human beings to God's rightful purpose for them. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers." And so he identifies with them. He calls us his brothers and sisters so that we can then reign with him. Now, after that section, we get to verses 14 through 18, and we get the results of his identification with us. And these results are unbelievable gifts and benefits for us. And so you can see in verse 14, he describes the incarnation. 
Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He had to do this in order to represent us, to become a human being, because humans were destined for this position of ruling and reigning. It says here that the children share in flesh and blood. I mean, this is a basic way of describing who we are as human beings. This is how God originally created us. We're embodied souls. We are flesh and blood. All human beings share in this. This is the reality that you and I and every other human who's ever existed have in common. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the language is he partook of the same things, which means that the second person of the Trinity also participated in flesh and blood. He took upon himself all the things that are essential to humanity. Every part of us that makes us human, that is part of who we are as human beings, he took that on and became a human. Philippians chapter 2 describes this as emptying himself or humbling himself by becoming a man. So it's almost like there was humbling by addition. He lowered himself by taking on all that is true of human beings. And through doing this, he identifies with us and represents us. He joins our team. This means that everything that is true and essential of a human being, sin not being essential to what it means to be human, but everything that is essential to a human being, Jesus took that on. It was true of him. He took on our weaknesses, our difficulties. He came as a real man. He was bound by time. He was prone to hunger. He needed sleep. He took on a physical flesh and blood body that was capable of dying. And he did this so that he might die. Why? He entered into death in order to overcome death and to overcome the one who had the power of death. Look at the rest of verse 14 there. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why did he do that? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. This sounds like this parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 11. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Right? That's what Jesus did. He partook of human flesh and humbled himself. Why? So that he could enter into our humanity and then die. And it was through death that he plundered the one who had the power of death. He meets death head on by experiencing it and overcomes it through the resurrection. And through his resurrection and his defeat of death, he conquers the one who has the power of death. Now, 
Why does it say here that he destroys the one who has the power of death? This takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. What happens in the Garden of Eden? Well, the serpent who is identified with Satan later on in Scripture, the serpent tempted human beings in order to destroy God's work. God had originally planned this purpose for human beings and for the earth. The serpent enters into the picture and tempts human beings in order to keep humanity from fulfilling that goal and that destiny. And God told Adam and Eve that their violation of his law, their rebellion against him, would result in death. And Satan, the devil, was the one who worked to bring this violation about. He was integral in bringing about sin and death for human beings. Now here it says that the devil has the power of death. Now you and I know that the devil does not ultimately have final authority on anything in the universe. He always operates under God's command and dominion. But he does hold the power of death over human beings because of sin. And now each and every one of us are born under the sentence of spiritual death and into the realm of Satan, into his kingdom. And so he, the serpent, undermines the purposes and plans of God for humanity. And it was his deceit that brought about the sentence of death and brought that to human beings. But remember the promise of Genesis chapter 3, right? All of that happens in the first part of Genesis 3. And then God starts handing out consequences for what has taken place. And he speaks specifically to the serpent and says that a descendant of Eve is going to crush his head. A descendant of Eve. It was human sin and rebellion against God that caused death and sin to enter the picture. And it would have to be, and it would be by God's design, a human being who would represent others and would win the victory over the serpent. That is precisely why God became a man, to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3. Jesus came to accomplish this work, 1 John 3.8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He broke the devil's power over us in death through entering into death. And winning this victory over the devil and over the power of sin and death accomplishes a second gift for us. And so our enemy is defeated because God became man. But look at this next one in verses 15 and 16. And this is as far as we will go this morning. Our deliverance is sure. Our deliverance is sure. Jesus enters into death, crushes the head of the serpent, and wins the victory for his people as a human being. This results not only in our enemy being done away with and his power being broken, but then it results in our deliverance. Notice in verse 15 specifically what we are delivered from. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong 
slavery. It's an interesting way of phrasing this, and it's something that we don't often see in Scripture. It's clear in this verse that the fear of death brings about lifelong slavery. So I'm going to work this out to make sure that we understand the glorious reality of what Christ's work has done for us and what his gift is to us because of the incarnation. And then we'll better understand the freedom that we have in him now as we live this life. So it's clear from this verse that the fear of death brings about lifelong slavery. So let's again go back to Genesis chapter 1 in our minds and understand exactly what God intended for human beings. We've talked about this already, but let me remind you of this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we've talked about us being created to rule and reign for God and under him and with him. Let's expand on that a little bit. We were created to know him. We were created to walk with him in a relationship with him. A relationship of closeness and joy as we represent him. We were designed to know him eternally and to experience his joy and his love. But all of that was dependent on human beings properly ordering themselves under his divine authority in obedience. We talked about this with the teens this morning, but in, in the garden, God gives humans every gift to enjoy. Eat of any tree in the garden. All is at your disposal except for one tree. They had everything that they needed or ever wanted and one prohibition. And yet, when the serpent proposed the idea that God was stingy and was not good, they bought that lie fully. And they believed him. And they sought to establish their own moral authority, their own righteousness. And by doing that, by rejecting God's way, they plunged themselves into sin and death. So this brings us back to Hebrews 2. Sin brings about death, which is un natural for human beings. We were not designed to live this way. We're not designed to live in sin and death. This is not how it should be. We were designed to live in fellowship with God and not according to our own sinful desires. Now, because we've decided that we are the boss and that we want to make our own rules and that we want to live by our own moral authority, now we are hopelessly enslaved to sin and the devil and death. We are unable to do what is right on our own. We're controlled by sin and destined to death. That is the reality of every human being. And all of that, the enslavement to sin, the fear of death, or the enslavement to sin brings about the fear of death. And that colors everything that we do. 
It enslaves us. Fear of death means that as you live life, there are moments of joy. There's the recognition that God has given good things perhaps in this life. Even if you don't know Christ, you experience the joy of family and friends, a job well done. You experience good food, the, the beauty of nature. All of that is there and there are moments of joy. But in the background of all of that, there is this sense and this reality that I'm going to die. And there is this sense that I'm going to be held accountable for, for what I do in this life. Judgment is coming. And so, because we're enslaved to sin and because we know we're going to die, death is approaching, God's judgment is coming with it, there is a fear of that. This creates a sense of unease, of anxiety, whole other host of dominating emotions in our lives. All of that comes because of our sin and because of death headed our way. One author summed it up like this, human experience is tragic. Life is not as it should be and ends in death, the penalty, the death penalty for sin. Death is an unnatural condition and intrusion into the realm of human existence. And hope, if there is any hope, must be in God himself breaking into this creation from outside and acting toward it in mercy. We're subject to to the lifelong slavery that comes from a fear of death and the only hope of breaking us out of that and providing freedom from death, from sin, and from lifelong slavery is God himself breaking into this creation. I love that. From outside. What do we call that? We call that mercy. We call that grace. Giving us something that we certainly don't deserve. Breaking into our world in order to rescue us from our master of sin. And that is exactly what he has done in the incarnation. Look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. This is obviously describing the incarnation and what comes comes about because of it here. But I want you to notice that the word help is used twice in this verse. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word help or what first comes to mind. It's easy to read this and sort of think of help in terms of helping to put away the dishes or helping to set up the Christmas tree. But that doesn't really capture what is happening with this word in this verse. And it doesn't really help to capture what God has done for us in Christ in winning the victory and freeing us from slavery to sin and death and the fear that comes along with that. If you enter into a burning building and you find me trapped under a fallen ceiling and unable to get out on my own and you pull me out from under that and you pick me up and carry me out of the building, I guess you could say that you helped me. That is, is one thing you could say. But that's not the, that's not the I think, the best word and, and to use to describe what's going on here. This image, help, this word here is better reflected in Hebrews 8, 9. This is actually a quote from Jeremiah, and look how it's it's used here. 
Not like the covenant that I made, speaking of Israel with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the same word, took them by the hand, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. What is this describing, this word that is used here? It's describing God rescuing Israel from Egypt by a mighty hand. You could say he helped them, but it's better to say that he provides a powerful and strong hand of deliverance from the tyrant that had had dominion over them in Egypt. It's the same word that's used here in our verse that he helps the offspring of Abraham. And so the author of Hebrews, when he describes this help that Jesus provides to us, wants us to think of Christ entering into death as a man and by strong and mighty hand through his own death, delivering us in the same way that he delivered Israel from Egypt. The tyranny has been overcome. And a great victory has been won that secures our deliverance and that secures our freedom. It's a second exodus that happens through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice here who he helps. Of course, it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He does not say he helps the offspring of Adam, does he? It's not what he says here, and that's important that he doesn't say that and that he does say he helps the offspring of Abraham. It's not every human being who shares in flesh and blood with Adam that he helps here, but he does help the offspring of Abraham. Now, what's significant about Abraham in the Old Testament? Well, lots of things, but listen to how Abraham sort of bursts onto the scene in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham at the very beginning of our account of Abraham here. He's mentioned in chapter 11, but this is really where it gets started with him in chapter 12. He is the recipient of God's promises, and these promises are not made in a vacuum. These promises come to him by God's grace as a way, the pathway of undoing the work of the serpent in Genesis 3. God is saying, look, I made these initial promises in Genesis 3, and I'm going to narrow my focus, and it's going to be through your family line that I'm going to bring about the resolution of these promises. So in other words, it's through Abraham and through his descendants that he's going to undo the work of the serpent and free human beings from the curse of sin. The promises made in Genesis 3, continue through the line of Abraham, and the blessings come to Abraham, to his descendants, and then they extend to all the nations of the earth. But it's all about these promises and receiving them by faith. What else do we know about Abraham? Genesis 15, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham is the father of faith. 
And the New Testament identifies the descendants of Abraham as the children of promise. In other words, to be a child of Abraham, to have Abraham as your father, means that you believe God's word like Abraham did, and you receive God's forgiveness and grace. Galatians 3 makes it abundantly clear. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we are children of Abraham and receive the strong victory and the help that comes through the incarnation of Christ when we repent of our sins, turn from our sins, and turn to Christ in faith and trust in him. So what have we seen so far in this passage this morning? Death has come into the world through the devil's work of tempting Adam and Eve to sin. And death has kept human beings from fulfilling their God-given role of ruling and reigning, according to Genesis 1, as God's representatives. Death has also brought about a dominating fear through sin that enslaves us, puts us under his dominion all of our lives. And so there's no way for us on our own to overcome the fear of death, to overcome sin and win the victory over the devil on our own. How does that happen? How, do we, how are we restored to our proper place under God? God in his grace has himself come to earth as a human being. He entered into death and defeated it. He destroyed the devil's power over us through sin and it overcame the, the tyranny of the devil through the fear of death and has freed us from slavery. And so now you and I no longer have to live afraid of what will happen after we die or fearful of judgment. 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus has won the victory over the tyrant of death and freed us like he did Israel in the Exodus. He helps by strong and mighty hand. And now you and I access that deliverance through faith in his word and we become children of the promise, children of Abraham. And all of the promises come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are only two of the gifts that we have because of the incarnation. We've got three more that are coming in verses 17 and 18. We'll continue to look at this passage next week and the week after. Let's pray this morning. Father, we're thankful for what we learn about the incarnation here, the the victory that you have won over the power of death and sin, the freedom that we now have from slavery and fear. And we're thankful that we become children of the promise, children of Abraham, when we believe like he believed, when we take you at your word and when we trust that you will come through. And so encourage us with these realities this morning. 
Help us to live in this world, the true world where Jesus has won and we are his children as we believe. Thank you for all you've done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.